Welcome, listeners, to the next chapter of Southern Grimoire. I'm your host, Katie Burr. The mysteries in this chapter of the Grimoire came, as many of them do, from my mother and grandmother. There's no question that I inherited my darker inclinations and fascination with the strange and macabre from them. Both voracious readers, with a sharp recollection for detail, they passed on their love of storytelling and their habit of hoarding large quantities of books. The stories I have for you today come from their collection. My grandmother grew up in Hammond, a small town in western Oklahoma. The town had a large Native American population, with many being descendants of Peace Chief Black Kettle and his band. In the early 1900s, Hammond was a prosperous town, with most of its commerce centered around ranching and farming. But, much like the town of Foss, the trials of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl took their toll. The population dwindled further after the Great Flood of 1934. Fourteen inches of rain pummeled the tiny town in only five hours, causing a flood that killed 17 people. My grandmother was a small child when her family moved back to Hammond in the 1940s. Her three eldest siblings had been born there, but the family had moved frequently to follow my great-grandfather's work. Though the population had dwindled, the center of life in Hammond was still farming, and people came and went with the harvest. My mother recalled a story that my grandmother had told her, one that she had learned from her own mother, about a time when the harvest had brought unexpected tragedy. Strangers would travel through western Oklahoma with the changing of the seasons, looking to make money wherever and however they could. In Hammond, the main crop was wheat, and every summer crews would ride in to help with the harvest. It was hot, dirty work, and after a long day of bringing in the crop, men would find a local watering hole to cool off and unwind. It was a common activity for the small town folk of Hammond, and something my great-grandfather himself did many times. My great-grandmother recalled that one particular evening, a young man went out to the watering hole with the rest of his crew, like any other night. Eager to cool off, he ran and dived in head first, but the water wasn't deep enough. His crew quickly pulled him from the water, but the damage was done. The young man had broken his neck. He was still alive after they'd pulled him to the bank. The crew tried to get him to tell them where he was from and how to contact his family, but he refused. He died without divulging any information. The townsfolk buried the young man in Kiowa Cemetery. They wrote down everything they knew about him and kept the information in a jar placed at the foot of his grave. After many years, the jar was broken and what little information it held was lost. Eventually, a blank slab of cement was used to mark his grave. My mother remembers my grandmother telling her the story one Memorial Day and she brought flowers to the mysterious man's grave. She often thought of him and wondered if he had any family that had searched for him. So much time has passed, and with no information left to speak of, it's unlikely that his identity will ever be discovered. But as long as his story is shared, we can be sure his memory will never be forgotten. Another case involving a mysterious identity is intertwined with my own memories. As a young girl, traveling with my family across southwestern Oklahoma, we would often pass through the small town of Hobart. On the side of the road, in the middle of nowhere, is a large stone memorial. We drove by it countless times, 
too quickly for me to see what it said or what it was for. It wasn't until years later that I learned the red granite slab marked the site of the Babs Witch Christmas fire. On Christmas Eve in 1924, the Babs Witch Schoolhouse held their annual Christmas program. The walls had been freshly painted in anticipation of the event. After recent storm damage, new windows and steel grates had been installed. The auditorium was cleaned and decorated. A large fir tree, trimmed with brightly colored tinsel and candles, served as the focal point. The spirit of Christmas was in the air, and the small town of Hobart was excited to come together and celebrate. The evening went as planned, until the young man playing Santa Claus leaned forward to retrieve a gift, accidentally bumping a candle. It immediately set the tree ablaze. The crowd panicked as the flames spread. The main doors, which swung inward, were blocked by the surging mass of people, desperate to escape. The one-room schoolhouse was completely enveloped by fire. On Christmas Day, rather than celebrating with their families, volunteers awoke early to dig graves in the local cemetery. Though 37 were counted as missing, only 36 bodies were found. Three-year-old Mary Edens was missing. Her Aunt Alice, who later died of her injuries, said that she had pushed little Mary through a loose window grate into the outstretched arms of a stranger. Mary's parents, Louis and Ethel Edens, believed that someone may have taken advantage of the confusion to kidnap their young daughter. For years, they held out hope that little Mary would be found. Decades passed, and the Edens had dealt with their fair share of imposters. Ethel was broken-hearted, afraid that she would never know what became of her baby girl. The family had just endured another case of mistaken identity when a mysterious letter from California arrived. A man named Elmont H. Place had seen an article about the anniversary of the Babs Witch Fire and the disappearance of Mary Elizabeth Edens. Place, an active member of the Lions Club in San Bernardino, California, knew a woman who, according to her, had an indeterminate background. After reading the article, he felt that the woman, named Grace Reynolds, might in fact be the missing girl from Hobart. He wrote to a fellow Lions Club member in Oklahoma, requesting information about the Edens family. The man, in turn, contacted Betty Edens, who had been born after the tragic fire and had never known her sister. Betty asked that her parents not be contacted. They had recently gone through another case of mistaken identity, hopeful that they had finally found their daughter, only to be disappointed again. Instead, Betty and her sister sent photos of young Mary. They also requested that blood tests be administered. Grace bore a resemblance to the photos of Mary, but the tests proved to be inconclusive. In the end, it was a small scar on Grace's foot that made the difference. Little Mary Eden had the same one. In 1957, 33 years after the Babs Witch Fire, the Edens were reunited. The reunion caused a media sensation, and Grace Reynolds appeared with her newfound parents on national television. Ethel Edens was convinced that she had finally found her little girl, and the discovery made Grace, who began going by Mary Elizabeth, quite the celebrity. But all was not as it seemed. While Grace's star was rising in Oklahoma, a storm was brewing back in California. A woman named Dorothy Link was raising a fuss, a woman who, according to her, was Grace Reynolds' sister. 
The Stockton newspaper in California, in conjunction with the Oklahoma newspaper, The Democrat Chief, launched an investigation. Before long, they had found a woman who swore she was Grace Reynolds' birth mother. Apparently, Grace had started telling people she had no family to distance herself from the truth. She was ashamed of her meager beginnings in rural Arkansas. When a reporter from the Democrat chief confronted Grace with the claims, she refused to make a statement either way, instead sending a telegraph that said, I'm not claiming nothing as yet. The two newspapers were working quickly, hoping to create a stir to rival the one that Grace Reynolds herself had caused. They had more than enough to cast doubt on the woman's claims. But the story was never published. Before going to print, Ransom Hancock, the owner of the Democrat Chief newspaper, brought all the evidence that he had to one man, Lewis Edens. Lewis Edens was distraught, but to him, the evidence was clear. He did not believe that Grace Reynolds was his missing daughter, but he also believed that his wife would be unable to cope with another heartache. He asked Hancock to keep the story to himself, at least until Ethel Edens had died. Hancock honored Lewis Edens' wish. On the 75th anniversary of the tragic schoolhouse fire, Ransom Hancock's son Joe finally published the story. The long secret letters, reports, and telegrams were available to the public at long last. Many Hobart residents had questions and doubts for years, and some still do. While Joe Hancock believes that little Mary Edens most likely perished in the blaze, others are unconvinced. If she died that ill-fated Christmas Eve, why was hers the only body that wasn't found? Grace Reynolds, who eventually went by Mary Edens Grossnickel, maintained that she was the Edens' long-lost daughter until her death. But the Edens' other children weren't as sure. Betty, who had initially welcomed Grace with open arms, had doubts about her alleged sister's identity after her father's meeting with Mr. Hancock. Etta Henderson, another of the Edens' daughters, felt the same. My daddy figured it out real quick, but we didn't want to hurt our mother, Etta told the Democrat chief newspaper. I'm not saying she's an imposter. I wouldn't. But I am saying she is not my sister. Now that Grace Reynolds has passed, we may never know the truth. Advances in forensic science and blood analysis could disprove Grace's claims once and for all, but many think it's better to let her rest in peace, whoever she was. If she wasn't who she claimed to be, the question remains, what happened to Mary Elizabeth Edens? 21 years before the Babswitch fire in the town of Enid, Oklahoma, a depressed and impoverished painter made equally shocking claims about his true identity. On January 13, 1903, a man walked into a local pharmacy and purchased two doses of strychnine, saying he needed the poison to dispose of a couple of pesky animals. He immediately went back to his room at the Grand Avenue Hotel and swallowed the strychnine. His pained bellows and groans brought people rushing to his room. On his deathbed, the man, previously known to the people of Enid as David George, claimed to be none other than the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. Twelve days after President Lincoln's assassination, members of the 16th New York Cavalry had received word that Booth was hiding out in Northern Virginia, near a place called Garrett Farm. The troops tracked him to a barn and there, 
and violation of explicit orders to take him alive. Sergeant Boston Corbett shot Booth through a crack in the wall. But was it really Booth that died that day? There were certainly doubts, and even the head of the Army's general counsel had suspicions. This man, named John Shoemaker, wrote, The evidence put forth by the government to support the conclusion that the body was that of John Wilkes Booth was so insubstantial that it would not stand up in a court of law. Another high-ranking official, Lieutenant William C. Allen, had expressed his doubts to his wife. In 1937, Mrs. Helen Allen, now a widow, told a reporter that her husband had told her that the man who had been shot to death at Garrett Farm had red hair. Lieutenant Allen had said the government knew that the man was not Booth, but they were determined to force him to take the fall anyway. Every known historical account of John Wilkes Booth describes him as having black hair. Lieutenant Allen's assertion that the deceased man had red hair was corroborated by two other Union soldiers, Wilson Kinsey and Joseph Zigson. Whether redheaded or not, whoever was killed that day was buried at Greenmount Cemetery in Baltimore in the Booth family plot. While fear and confusion gripped the nation after Lincoln's assassination, a dark-haired man who called himself John St. Helen was making his way to Texas. St. Helen eventually settled in Granbury, Texas, making the acquaintance of a local attorney named Finnis Bates. In 1878, St. Helen fell deathly ill, and according to Bates, feared he was not long for this world. Weak and feverish, St. Helen had revealed to Bates a shocking secret. He was really John Wilkes Booth, and in case of his death, someone should notify his brother Edwin. But St. Helen survived the night and eventually regained his health. He soon disappeared from Granbury without a word, and no one knew where he had gone. Twenty-five years later, a dark-haired painter walked into the Grand Avenue Hotel and asked for a room. After David George's dramatic suicide, a note was found bearing instructions to contact Finnis Bates. Upon his arrival, Bates recognized George as none other than John St. Helen. After embalming, the body of the mysterious man known as David George and John St. Helen was purchased by Finnis Bates. Bates displayed the mummy in various sideshows across the United States. After Bates' death, his widow sold the mummy to an unknown party and it has been missing ever since. Historian Nate Orlewek thinks it's possible that America's most notorious assassin met his end in small-town Oklahoma, and he believes he has the evidence to prove it. Orlewek said evidence collected by Finnis Bates, eventually corroborated by himself and his research team, makes it seem likely that George was in fact John Wilkes Booth. Orlewek retraced George's steps to Oklahoma through El Reno and Hydro, after the man known as St. Helen left Texas and before George showed up in Enid. The most compelling fact, Orlewek told the Edmund Sun newspaper, is that George, then known as St. Helen, related to Bates details of a botched plan to kidnap Lincoln that would have been known by Booth, but which weren't released from government records until 1935, long after Bates' death. But proving who David George really was is an impossible task without the man's body, which Orlowek has been searching for for decades. In the meantime, 
The historian has been busy petitioning for the right to do DNA testing on vertebra from the man killed at Garrett Farm against a living Booth relative. The Booth family, along with the Maryland State's Attorney and the Smithsonian Institution, have all agreed to the test, but a competing group of historians and Greenmount Cemetery blocked the exhumation attempt in court. Court documents cite several reasons for blocking the exhumation, including the fact that Booth's grave is unmarked and they aren't exactly sure where he is buried, and that three infant siblings are reportedly buried on top of him. But I wonder, if Greenmount Cemetery is unsure of where the body of John Wilkes Booth is buried, how do they know that three other bodies are buried on top of him? Another reason cited is the fact that the sample could potentially be so badly eroded that testing might prove to be inconclusive. If the Booth family and the Smithsonian Institution are both on board, why is the cemetery dragging its heels? Who was buried in the Booth family plot? Who was killed in the barn at Garrett Farm? Will we ever know the true identity of David E. George? Only time will tell. That's all for this chapter of Southern Grimoire. I hope that you'll join me next time. Until then, remember, listeners, there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by light.